Welcome to the Plenty of Gas podcast, the podcast with plenty of great Australian stories. I'm your host, Luke Sutton, and today's story is the second part of the Green Flying Monster and the QF30. But before we get into today's podcast, I thought I'd ask you a question which I'll answer at the end of the podcast. And my question for you today is this. Now, last week we explained that one of the oxygen bottles of the QF30 had exploded. My question for you today is why? Was it A, a design problem? Was it B, a production problem? Was it C, a maintenance problem? Or was it D, someone had tampered with it? And as I said, I'll answer that at the end of the podcast. But now, time for today's story. Now, hopefully if you listened to the podcast last week, where we described that Frederick Valentich in 1978 had flown a Cessna aircraft from Melbourne to Cape Otway and then onto King Island. En route, he came across a aircraft or some type of strange aircraft which was harassing him and it had a green light. The only problem was that he never made it to his destination. And Frederick Valentich and his plane was never seen again. Or was it? The wreckage of some small parts with partial serial numbers relating to a Cessna aircraft were found on the 15th of May 1983 on the shores of Flinders Island. Valentich's aircraft serial numbers fell within the range of those found on the wreckage. This is considered to be quite significant because even though many Cessna planes have been lost to Bass Strait, none were known to have gone down within that five-year period, and the parts of the wreckage appeared to be recent. Some have speculated that the strong currents had therefore carried the wreckage from where it had originally impacted, while others claim that the partial numbers proved nothing in themselves, and that they could have easily been planted there causing a further diversion from the truth. Therefore, this wreckage is placed in the same brackets as the marine oil and parts found earlier, which wasted everyone's searching efforts. Wreckage conveniently placed and discovered where Valentich's last radio contact stated he was. A second main suggestion was that it was planned or staged. This is all based on the fact that, one, he was evasive about his intent going over to King Island. Two, he was never picked up on radar. And three, no wreckage was ever found. Again, we can break this option up into three further subcategories. First, drug trafficking. Second, suicide. And third, celebrity stunt. Let's take the first one, drug smuggling. This suggestion hints to the fact that he was transporting probably some sort of hallucinogens over to King Island, which somehow leaked out into the plane's cabin and affected the pilot's performance and heightened his paranoia. This suggestion is all based on the fact that Valentich was evasive about his reasons for going to King Island in the first place. He stated to officials at the airport that he was going to go and pick up passengers, while to his family, girlfriends and acquaintances, he told them he was going to go and pick up some crayfish. 
Investigation after his disappearance revealed that there was no passengers waiting to be picked up and neither was there any crayfish ordered by him or even available at that time. So, why go over? He had made three trips to King Island in the past and this was his first time in trying to make the trek at night. During his prior visits, had he straked up an unhealthy business practice? It is very difficult to give this theory too much credence, following Valentich's untroubled and seemingly content history. Other than his girlfriend worked at a pharmacy, there is nothing else that really points to this suggestion as being credible. If Valentich had radioed in flying leprechauns and giant ants riding on the back of fiery unicorns, maybe then we could give this theory more credit. With regards to his reason for going over being crayfish, this is still the most likely reason. It is noted that he took with him an empty container. He originally wanted to go on the 17th, Tuesday, but cancelled due to weather. Hence, as a last resort, he may have not bothered placing an order in for crayfish because he knew where on the island he could have picked them up. It just turns out to be ironic that they had sold out of crayfish that afternoon, so his whole trip over was completely in vain anyway. Valentich also knew that it was against the NB and SAS standards to even allow crayfish to be transported in their aircraft. This is why he was evasive to officials at the airport stating that he was going over to pick up passengers and why he took four life jackets with him to keep up appearances. He was probably planning to return late at night when no one could see anything. He told his family he would return at 10pm. It is interesting to note that he also had a large amount of cash on him, at least 200, some sources claim 300. Was this money just for the crayfish? However, other things point to suicide. One of the biggest reasons he may have wanted to end his life is because he had his heart set on becoming a pilot. He was rejected twice by the Royal Australian Air Force for enlisting. And though he was being financially supported by his father to gain his commercial pilot's license, he had also filed all the necessary qualifications. This meant that it would have been impossible for him ever to gain his pilot's license. Even though he was on the brink of being given official notice of his failure, did he already have an inkling that he had failed? His girlfriend said he was not himself the night before. He even told his girlfriend that he would be back at 7.30pm, which would have been an impossible appointment to make. Frederick filed only a one-way flight plan to King Island. He did not request aerodrome lighting, even though he was aware that King Island Airport had closed. Usually it was normal procedure to ask for the landing lights to be turned on before takeoff. It was, however, possible to radio King Island in flight and have the lights illuminated, but he never did. Another thing of concern is that during the whole radio transmission, which consists of 19 transmitted messages, Valentich's voice sounds more matter-of-fact than it did of panic. Of those 19 messages though, 9 have incorrect or confused call signs. 
Does this not point to the fact that Valentich was genuinely concerned for his safety? Some are puzzled by the fact that on the 13th of October, he gave his girlfriend a friendship ring a week earlier than their proper constituted monthly anniversary, which would have been on the 20th, even despite her protesting. He insisted that she needed to take it now. To Rushton's mother, Valentich, claimed he had earlier intended to take his father on this trip, and that he was scared of going over water, and that the plane was an old one. Was he secretly expressing to her that he was about to make a suicide flight? Also, one pilot searching at the right time and place saw debris that appeared to be from a Cessna, but before he could get a good fix on its position, it apparently sank. Rhonda claimed that Fred had made arrangements to go out on that Saturday night, and that she had asked him to take a change of clothes with him, so that they could go out after his flight. But, no clothes were ever left in his car. Some claim that it was simply a publicity stunt, which may or may not have gone wrong. They claim simply that there was nothing even out there. He was making the whole thing up, and that he probably wasn't even flying anywhere where he said he was. With this in mind, it is interesting to note that neither the Cape Otway lighthouse keepers nor the Bass Strait fishermen ever reported seeing a light aircraft in the vicinity. Some claim that this may have been because pilots usually cut the corner and begin to turn to sea when they see the lighthouse in the distance. In truth, however, a spokesman for the Department of Transport stated that Valentich had enough fuel for 1,040 kilometres, or 300 minutes of non-stop flying. Taking into account a trip of between 30 and 45 minutes to Cape Otway, the aircraft still had enough fuel to fly 800 kilometres. This means he could have been anywhere. There were some reports that a light plane had made a mysterious late night landing in the western district not far from Cape Otway at about the same time as Valentich's disappearance. An anonymous man even tipped newspapers, TV crews and radio stations that he was simply holed up at an Apollo Bay motel. Police investigated this claim but it yielded no results. The question is, how do you hide a plane on land for so long? How did he fake the engine spluttering and the metallic scraping noises at the end of the transmission? It would, however, explain why the plane wreckage was never found. The problem with it having crashed at sea is that the Cessna 182 was designed to float for several minutes. It was equipped with life jackets, which must not have been used or they would have washed ashore and a black box radio survival beacon which transmits on a high distress frequency in the result of an impact. No distress call was ever heard. The other questions needing to be answered if it was a publicity stunt is, was he working alone, or did he have a partner? Rhonda Rushton, aged 17, a devout Methodist, had dated Valentich for six months and was already under the impression that her relationship was at a very serious stage, though Valentich's father seemed not to agree. Police investigators noted 
that Rhonda seemed to enjoy the limelight and on practically every other flight had accompanied her boyfriend with the exception of this journey. To further incriminate her, seven days after Valentich's disappearance, she arrived at a local motel, which they had previously arranged to meet Valentich before he made his last flight. When she inquired to the motel manager if Valentich had checked in and was told no, she displayed both surprise and was visibly upset. Had she finally come to terms that Valentich would not be coming back? The other suggested accomplice, interestingly, is the father Guido. He constantly uttered his firm belief to media that he believed that his son had been abducted by a UFO and that it would return him later. This is exactly what Travis Walton's brother had told investigators when he had hoaxed an abduction. Was the original plan to simply go missing for a while and then magically appear with tales of abduction and cash in on all the flurry of media? If that was the case, then something must have gone horribly wrong. Guido is now deceased, and he never did again get to see his son, Frederick. Now let's look at the last theory, accidental. This theory basically conveys that Valentich became disorientated and flew straight into the ocean. Granted, there was a lot of things that night which could have confused Valentich. There was a long meteorite shower that night. Venus was shining at its brightest magnification. There was an aurora australis reported in the vicinity and an unusual plague of moths around Cape Otway. A previous pilot who used the exact same plane claimed that even oil had splashed onto its windscreen causing a whole range of visual effects. So, since Valentich was a firm believer in UFOs and had recently browsed through two Royal Australian Air Force confidential files on UFOs, then it is possible that he was prone to see what he wanted to see. Or, he was just simply being paranoid. Spatial disorientation, SD, or pilot's vertigo, basically not knowing which way was up, is quite a common killer of pilots. Federal Aviation Administration statistics show that SD is partly responsible for about 15% of general aviation accidents, which occur in clouds or at night, and 90% of them being fatal. According to a 2004 study, the average life expectancy of a non-instrument rated pilot who flies into clouds or instrument conditions is about 178 seconds. This was all demonstrated on June 26, 2007, when Major Gregory D. Young of the Air National Guard flew his F-15A fighter straight into the Pacific Ocean at over 600 miles per hour. The 32 million aircraft was destroyed and the pilot killed. There was no distress score, no attempt to eject and no apparent aircraft malfunction. Young, 34, had 2,300 hours of flight time, more than 750 hours of it in F-15s. The cause was simply spatial disorientation. In other words, Young did not know what hit him. This was Valentich's first night flight, 
over water. The sea was calm that night, and most locals claimed that you could see the stars in the water since it was a cloudless night. If Valentich was too busy looking for his UFO rather than his instruments, and too busy trying to shake off his pursuer by orbiting or barrel rolling, then he may have flipped his plane upside down without knowing. Each time he tried to compensate would have only brought him closer and closer to the ocean. At first he claimed that there was an object 5,000 feet below, below him. Later he described his altitude as being 4,500, which interestingly is the lowest he could go to remain in radio contact. But it also shows that his altitude rate was already decreasing. Others suggest that some windscreens are tinted green at the top and the Cessna planes are naturally always nose heavy. So, if Venus was his UFO as he spiralled downwards, then it would have appeared as a green light playing games flying past him two or three times at incredible speeds. He also was not a very experienced pilot. He had twice applied to enlist in the Royal Australian Air Force, but was rejected because of inadequate educational qualifications. This made him want to become a commercial pilot, but again he had a poor achievement record. Having twice failed all five commercial license examination subjects, and as recent as the previous month, having failed three more commercial license subjects. He had been involved in flying incidents, straying into a controlled zone in Sydney, for which he received a warning, twice deliberately flying into cloud, for which prosecution was being considered, and once approaching the wrong runway, coming back from King Island on a previous trip. In all, Valentich only had a Class 4 instrument rating, and a measly 150 hours of flight experience. Not very impressive. Aviation enthusiasts are quick to point out that prolonged upside-down flight in a Cessna 182L is impossible, since it has a gravity-fed fuel system and a vertical carburetor. This would have blocked the fuel flow to the engine within 60 seconds. It is interesting to note that after Valentich claimed he was orbiting and that the thing was orbiting with him, not far from this 60-second time frame, Valentich's engine begins to show signs of trouble. If by orbiting Valentich is referring to the fact that he was performing a barrel-rolling manoeuvre to get away from his assailant, then the engine would have shown signs of struggle around this time, as it was not a constant prolonged upside-down flight. We will finish again with the same reenactment we opened this podcast with, but this time we will inject the special disorientation suggestion in to clearly demonstrate what might have happened and what was going through Valentich's brain throughout the whole encounter. Valentich left 6.19pm. He was pretty confident that his flight would be without hitch. Clear sky, no clouds or moon, very little wind. It was perfect, unlike the previous Tuesday, but still he had no time to spare. He was in a rush to get to King Island and get some crayfish for his family get-together. This was the last chance he had. He didn't bother to request runway lights at King Island. He was in a rush, and he'll do that mid-flight. At 7pm, Valentich calls in that he has reached Cape Otway, 
In truth, he is going to cut the corner like he has never cut it before. He is in a rush. He promised his family that he would be back by 10pm. He's going to start flying out to sea at Apollo past Cape Morango. With no moon, it's getting dark quicker. The sea is calm and reflects the stars in the sky. He has calculated the angle wrong, and without radioing in for the lights on King Island to be turned on, he has no point of reference to aim for. Little is he aware that his current trajectory will miss King Island completely. He raises his aircraft to 6,000 so he can get a better view. Maybe he feels now that he has not turned the aircraft enough. He tilts it slightly as he looks around. Through his side window, he can see his reflection in the water. The reflection in the water is slightly distorted and he can't recognise the aircraft. Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000 feet? No known traffic. Seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000 feet. It's his own reflection, but he still can't recognise it. What type of aircraft is it? I cannot confirm. It's four bright, seems to be like landing lights. He tilts the plane more on its side and lowers his height even more so. But now he's tilted his aircraft to the side, the plane's lights no longer reflect in the water. The aircraft has vanished. As he spirals back to his correct position, he again sees it. However, now he is actually looking at the planet Venus, and mistaking that for the same aircraft. The aircraft has just passed over me at at least a thousand feet above. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? No known aircraft in the vicinity. Valentich stops barrel rolling and goes and tries to turn back into his correct position. He now pulls his throttle up to get himself out of the nosedive and retilts back to its original position. He now sees that light in his side window, meaning he is flying towards Flinders Island, directly away from King Island. Seems to be playing some sort of game. He's flying over me. Completely confused, he scans his instruments. His altimeter is dropping. His compass is moving. But it feels like he is going straight. There must be something wrong with the instruments. Maybe it's this light zooming past him. He presses on. A voice in his head tells him he should have turned back. But it's closer to King Island. He needs to find King Island. He stares out in the darkness, squinting. His stomach is now in knots. He swallows. His mouth is still dry. He begins to sweat. It's just so hot in this cockpit. The light is still zooming past him. Can you describe the uh, the aircraft? As it's flying past, it's a long shape. He isn't easing on the throttle. He is still travelling at about 160 miles per hour. He needs to get there quick. He is busy watching this scene that might at any time smash into him. He now has 178 seconds to live. Compass still turning slightly, but the aircraft still feels like it's at an even keel. He pushes a little rudder and adds a little pressure on the controls to stop the turn, but it feels unnatural and he returns the controls to their original position. The light is somewhat above him. He needs to get away. Cannot identify it. It has such speed. His compass is still turning faster, and his airspeed is increasing slightly. 
All the instruments seem unfamiliar to him now. Surely if he gets away from this thing, the instruments will go back to normal. He adds more pressure. He now has 100 seconds to live. It's before me right now, Melvin. How large would the, um, the object be? Seems like it's stationary. What it's doing right now is orbiting. The thing is just orbiting on top of me. It's also got a green light and a sort of metallic-like... It's shiny on the outside. He glances at his altimeter and is shocked to see it's still unwinding. He's down to 1,200 feet. Instinctively, he pulls back on the controls, but the altimeter still unwinds. The engine is in the red, and the airspeed nearly so. He now has 45 seconds to live. It's just vanished. Is the aircraft still with you? Say again. Is the aircraft still with you? Now approaching from the southwest. Sweating and shaking, he can't get rid of his pursuer. It's causing his controls to be all wrong. Pulling back only moves his airspeed indicator further into the red. He can hear the wind tearing at the aircraft. He now has 20 seconds to live. The, the engines are rough idling. The sea is coughing. What are your intentions? My intentions are to go to King Island, Melbourne. That strange aircraft hovering on top of me again. It's hovering and it's not an aircraft. Suddenly, he sees the water. His reflection rushes towards him. He can see the horizon, but it's at an unusual inverted angle. He opens his mouth to gasp. In 1998, a memorial was erected by the Valentich family at Cape Otway. It was unveiled by Steve Roby, the last person to speak with Frederick Valentich. Maybe one day in future, that is to say if Valentich's plane is ever located, or the original audio recording of Valentich is ever found, or even if Roy Manifold's negatives still exist, and the countless eyewitnesses and Rhonda Rushton are submitted to a polygraph, maybe then it will shed more light on this what can only be described as a bizarre mystery. Whatever the case, just when you think you've worked it all out, remember also this one interesting fact. Two Royal Australian Air Force P-3 Orions were in the use of the search of Valentich over a seven-day period, covering the whole of Bass Strait and its vicinity. These aircraft are designed to be able to detect underwater submarines. They are so complicated that they are still being used today and are yet to be replaced. Yet the two of them found nothing. What happened on that fateful day? Is Valentich still alive? I'll leave that for D.B. Cooper to decide. Well, like me, I hope you've enjoyed today's story on the Green Flying Monster. It's a story I find scary to think about. To be there at the wrong place at the wrong time, while in a wrong, helplessly vulnerable situation. Ironically, Valentich had visioned that for himself. To his mother, Valentich said, I'm worried that one day a UFO might come down and divide the family. That they might take us away. So was he paranoid? Or was it planned? Was he really planning to buy crayfish? Was he trying to find he who sells she sells by the seashore? 
When you think of government cover-ups and UFOs, most people would think of Roswell, where the government was quick to deny UFOs and quick to state that it was a weather balloon. I find it ironic, in this official report, the government is actually quick to deny that it was a weather balloon and quick to state that it could have been a UFO. Are they trying to hide something from us here? Are there weather balloons that they are not telling us about? Strangely, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was probably the last film Valentich ever saw. So with that in mind, if we ever want to see Valentich again, then we probably need to go to the top of a mountain and start playing musical chords through a loudspeaker. Join me next time as we discuss one of the most controversial subjects of Australian history. To free or not to free. We will give you the official version and the non-official version. Last week we revealed how unlucky the flight of QF-30 was. Now we will reveal the ins and outs to show you how lucky the passengers of QF-30 really were. Let's take each problem one at a time. First, as we stated before, one of the oxygen tanks ruptured, ripping a giant hole in the fuselage. The hole was 2 metres long and 1.5 metres wide. Other than debris later being discovered on the number 3 engine pylon and a cut appearing on the engine intake, it seems that no debris actually flew into one of the jet's spinning blades. They were lucky. It could have been a lot worse. In fact, other than a few bottles of wine and the gas cylinder itself, no other baggage was even lost. This is because adjacent to the giant hole was baggage that had been palletized and netted. This caused a partial blockage. Again, very lucky. Now let's look at the depressurization, which happened in 13 seconds. We will play an example of depressurization in a plane, followed by the automated emergency announcement, which activates in a Boeing 747. Attention! Attention! Emergency announcement! Attention! Attention! Emergency announcement! Pull the oxygen mask firmly towards you. Place the mask over your nose and mouth. Breathe normally. Fit the strap around your head and adjust to fit firmly. Put your own mask on first before helping others. Stay seated. Fasten your seatbelt low Ladies and gentlemen, stay calm and keep your masks on. We have lost cabin pressure and the captain is descending the aircraft to an altitude where masks will no longer be required. Do not be alarmed. The cabin crew will assist you shortly. In the meantime, stay seated with your oxygen mask on and seat down faster until otherwise advised. The problem here is the oxygen bottle had cut 85 wires one of them being responsible for the automated emergency message. The passengers never got it. As a result, passengers were unaware that after a plane's emergency mask falls down, you still have to pull it to activate the oxygen. This is to stop oxygen from bleeding out into empty masks. 
Some on board didn't even have masks dropped down, and others didn't have oxygen going to their masks. So how did they survive? This is all thanks to the pilot Captain John Bartels, whose mind began to operate like a very efficient computer. He immediately realised that he needed to level the plane at 10,000 feet, so that oxygen was no longer needed. He began a rapid descent from 29,000 feet, and it took him just under 7 minutes to get to the necessary level. There was still enough oxygen in the remaining bottles for 65 minutes. But it's not just the lack of oxygen that gets people at high altitudes. It's actually more likely the temperature. So it is extremely lucky that Captain Bartels did not go into a panic mode, or it could have been quite devastating. Now for the door problem. The fact that the oxygen bottle hit the R2 door handle, moving it into an open position, was not an unlucky thing, but an extremely lucky one. You see, the fault with the oxygen bottle is that the whole bottom end of it had given out, so that instead of a small release, which may have happened if the fault with the oxygen bottle was at the valve end, instead it resulted with the whole contents of the bottle being vented instantly, causing 110,000 pounds of thrust, turning the oxygen bottle into a torpedo. The fact that it hit the door handle, and as for that matter, the extension of the door handle, being the toughest, it caused most of the projectile's energies to be spent. If it had not hit the door handle, then it may have even gone straight through the plane. Very lucky, indeed. The Boeing's doors are plug doors, and are designed with extra preventative measures to ensure that the doors are not opened mid-flight. So the door handle being in an open position still did not actually open the door. Also, when the original rupture occurred, the aircraft's two pressure relief valves vented air from the aircraft forcing open the two circular blowout doors on the left side of the jet, easing further pressure on the now damaged door. Landing the fact that there was no landing systems, again, success here can largely be attributed to Captain John Bartels. He immediately diverted for an emergency landing at Manila Airport, which he had done many times before. He started a fuel dump before going into an emergency landing. He used visual aids and conducted a smooth touchdown, using reverse thrust and minimal braking. Again, it is incredibly lucky that Captain John Bartels had just completed a training session where no anti-skid was involved. It was further lucky that they were blessed with good weather, in an area where storms are experienced frequently. We are now going to play the recording of the touchdown inside that plane. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're safe in ground here now. What's going to happen now is that the fire vehicles and emergency people are going to have a look at us, and then depending on what they say, they might let us taxi off the runway. We may have to shut down here. Please remain in your seats. Thanks for your help so far. But it'll be a few more minutes before we actually know exactly uh, what we're going to be doing next. As soon as we do, we'll get back in. Every time I hear that, I'm always surprised that the applause wasn't deafening, with them high-fiving and kissing each other or something. So is Captain John Battelle's a hero? 
Well, he doesn't think so. He claims to be just an ordinary person who was just performing his job as professionally as he could. In joke, he stated, If there was an injector seat available, then I would have had another option, but there wasn't, so I didn't. So why did the cylinder explode in the first place? Well, according to the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, the oxygen cylinder was crafted using heat-treated alloy steel. It was designed and produced according to US Department of Transport 3HT specifications. Nominal wall thickness is 3.2mm, with no welded seams or end caps. The operating pressure of the cylinder was at 1850 PSI. They are rectified every three years by internal visual inspection and pressure testing to 3080 PSI. The 40 cylinder was manufactured in February 1996 and had been retested four times, the last being approximately two months before the failure. With the assistance of Boeing, six other containers from the same production batch was obtained and tested. No evidence found of any deficiency in the cylinder design or manufacturing process. The robustness of the cylinders makes it impossible for the level of damage that was done to be caused simply by accidental dropping of the cylinder or hitting it. The plane itself was also forensically swabbed to try and find if any traces of explosives could be found. None were. In conclusion, according to the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, since the damaged cylinder in question lay somewhere at the bottom of the South China Sea, no reason could be determined for the 40 cylinders rupture. But here's the thing, oxygen cylinders just don't blow up for no reason. There has to be a reason. The aircraft itself had a D-check in Sydney, which is a major check for an aircraft in 2004, and then it had a C-check in Avalon in 2006, and another C-check in 2008. These routine corrosion checks had revealed that the 17-year-old Boeing was in fact a rust bucket, whereas the average life of a 747 is actually 15 years. But instead of scrapping it, they had simply just given the jet a refit to modernise the interior for passengers. Months before the explosion, US authorities had ordered that all US 747s perform a thorough check on their oxygen cylinders. This is because many of them were discovered not to be properly heat treated and that they needed to be replaced. Australian authorities had also got wind of this news and ordered Qantas to check all their oxygen cylinders. The batch of six that the Australian Transport Safety Bureau had tested, one of them actually was discovered to have multiple crack-like features, the biggest being 12mm long. Just three days before the oxygen bottle exploded, the crew of this plane noted in the technical log on a flight from Los Angeles to Sydney that the passenger oxygen needed to be refilled. But the maintenance staff checked the oxygen and the servicing display and found it to be within the serviceable limits. The same thing happened a month before 
with a separate crew oxygen system. Special approval was obtained by the Civil Aviation Safety Authority to keep flying the plane even with this obvious defect in the crew oxygen levels. During this time, Qantas was also involved with a bit of pay dispute with its 1,500 licensed engineers. Qantas had began to outsource a large source of its maintenance to Malaysia. Engineers here in Australia were told to be extra vigilant when they walk around the aircraft since many dodgy repair works were beginning to appear on Qantas jets. Some jets were found to now have inferior staples to secure wiring. One jet lost all of its power from all of its generators because of a leaking drip tray. Another jumbo jet blew all three tyres when it landed and the list goes on. In 1997, Qantas had sacked here in Australia 53 engineering apprentices, including the Apprentice of the Year, and all the major D-check halls were now going to Singapore. The internal audit on maintenance issues there were far below CASA's safety regulations and even Qantas's own safety regulations. So, what was the reason for the oxygen bottle to blow up? Was it production? Was it maintenance? Or was it both? Were the passengers of the QF30 destined to live? I guess I'll leave that for Alex Browning to decide. Well, that concludes today's podcast. If you have a request or question or you have some information you would like to share on Frederick Valentich or the QF30, please email me at plentyofgasoneword at y7mail.com or kyzka at y7mail.com Kiska being my nickname. Well, thank you for listening. Join me next time. Bye for now.